Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Posnanski, and uh, we are, uh, as you know, uh, getting uh, closer to Rio, and uh, so we are beginning our countdown here on the podcast. And uh, really fortunate today to have uh, one of my favorite people and announcers, and uh, and someone who is going to play a huge role in Rio, uh, NBC's Tom Hammond. Tom, thanks for, for taking the time. My pleasure, Joe, and uh, like you, looking forward to Rio. It'll be an adventure, as uh, all these Olympics are. This will be my 12th, so uh, I, I know what's at stake, and uh, it's one of the highlights always of, of any of our uh, job assignments that we have. It's so much fun. It's so much fun, and obviously there's there's tremendous lead-up to it, and, and you know, this being your 12th, this will be my 8th, uh, and uh, this is not the first Olympics where there were all sorts of you know, rumors in the air and, and problems and things that had to be overcome leading into the Olympics, right? It seems like it's always that way. Right. And uh, and also, it seems like it always works out fine. So uh, I, I'm not too apprehensive about it. There are some unique, I guess, uh, problems this time. But I remember before Athens, it was all gloom and doom. And before uh, just about all of the Olympics, it seems like there are, are these stories about things that are going to go wrong or things that haven't been finished or so on. But it always seems to work out. In fact, in my experience, it's been, uh, I haven't had a single bad Olympics yet. I love them. I love them. And, I, and your point is 100% right. I, I tell people, and maybe this comes from, from experience, but before Athens, it was way more tense, I thought. Because, I mean, there was, it was so much talk of, of terrorism and, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know what, what you had to do. Yeah, and the venue's not being finished. I mean, they were even talking about, oh, it's going to have to be moved to another location. That's how severe those stories were that's right i remember they was they were talking about hey let's just bring it back to sydney which which wouldn't have been bad sydney was <laughs> was right. an amazing olympics <laughs> wouldn't have mind going back there either no no so your first olympics was actually 1992 is that right no it was 1988 in uh, seoul south korea when i did uh, men's and women's basketball with uh with a legendary Al McGuire as the color commentator wow wow so that was in 88 so you did that uh, with Al McGuire, and then in 92 is when you started with track and field? Correct. I did diving for the first week and then track and field when it began in the just before the second week. So that was my first uh, experience with track and field. I had done the world championships in Tokyo the uh, year before, so uh, 91 was the first time I began to do track and field. It was an interesting, Joe. I had done an, an NBA playoff game in Boston, the Pacers and the Celtics, and uh, on Sunday, and on Monday, I was back home and got a call from Dick Ebersol, then the chairman of NBC Sports, and he said, uh, well, what do you know about track and field? <laughs> I said, oh, well, not much. I might have been to a track meet a time or two in my life, but I really don't know anything about it. Don't follow it. He said, well, you'll be fine. I want you to do the U.S. championships here in two weeks, and then if that works out all right, on to the uh, world championships and next year the Olympics, if everything goes well. So that was my uh, introduction to track and field. <laughs> It's incredible when I when I look at your career, uh, there there are so many things that that are striking. But most striking of all is the variety of things that you've done. I mean, you've you've really there almost isn't a sport that you haven't touched at some point in your career. Well, in an age of specialization, that that's kind of a, a proud moment for me to yeah. be able to do all these different uh, sports, and it does take some work, Joe. I mean, uh, you you can't just cram for it the week before. You've got to kind of stay up on all these different things which requires some work but just like any job you have to work at it and and i really take pride in being able to do the different things and you know one thing i've learned that that applies to all those sports 
Uh, don't try to show how much you know because you'll end up showing how much you don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why there's an expert color commentator sitting next to me. So I have learned when to shut up. And uh, as I like to say, I know just enough to be dangerous. But um, I do enjoy all the different sports. It keeps you on your toes, and, and uh, it, it makes for a great, great year when you look forward to the next event, which may be different from the one you just did. Well, I'm familiar with uh, and have worked with you uh, when you're when you're preparing for the Kentucky Derby for the Triple Crown races. Obviously, that is uh, something very close to your heart anyway. So I know a little bit about your preparation for those things. But when you come into track and field, which is obviously, you know, it's it, that and swimming and gymnastics, I suppose, are the three biggest things at the Olympics. But track is so vast. There's so many different events, so much. Talk a little bit about the preparation that you do leading into Olympics like this. Well, you have to keep up with the uh, with the players, uh, which is a worldwide thing. You know, it's not just the U.S. You have to keep up with what's going on. Now, it's made easier, Joe, because we've done the world championships for the last few years. Sure. Those are in the odd years. And so we do get to see some of those that will be participating in the Olympics as well. So that helps with your preparation. And uh, we do the U.S. championships every year and several other track meets. So it's not like you're walking into it totally cold. But you read all the clippings from around the world, and you read all the things that go on uh, talking about track and field. And, of course, it's a, it's a time of controversy, and it has been for the last few years because of all the doping uh, controversies. Sure. But, uh, and there's a lot to keep up with, but it, it involves a lot of reading, a lot of talking to people who know, and when you get there, of course, talking to the athletes themselves. So it does help a lot, though. And we have researchers, Olympic researchers, which also provide you with all this uh, excellent information. But what the real key is to being able to do the world championships and seeing most of the athletes who will be participating in the Olympics like the next year. What, what is, you, you, you come in with preparation, obviously, and you, and you do have a sense from, from working the world championships, from the uh, research you do yourself, the Olympic research, as you mentioned, and, and NBC's Olympic researchers are extraordinary. I mean, it's amazing the amount of, of information that we get. When you, when you deal with all that, you, as you just said, you were sort of thrown cold into your first track meet. For somebody who is, you know, as a writer, uh, I know that it's different covering each of these events. Uh, it, you, you you write with a very different tone when you're writing about track and field than you do when you're writing about Notre Dame football or the Celtics right. basketball or whatever. Is it different as an announcer, or do you just let yourself be who you are as an announcer? Well, a little bit of both. Um, it is different. I mean, uh, and when I first began doing track and field, for instance, most of the callers of track and field over the years not just at NBC, any place, um, mostly relied on lots of split times and yeah. lots of matter-of-fact commentary. Um, coming from the world of four-legged racers, or red racing, I tried to uh, inject some of that excitement of the race into it, not just the times and this and that, but the important thing to me was who's going to win this race yeah. and to try to put some drama into the call as that race unfolds. So I brought sort of a new approach to it, uh, basically because of my background. And and because I had followed uh, thoroughbred racing for so long, that's what I thought I was going to do with my life before I got into broadcasting. Um, even if it's a, a horse race, it's still a race. And you kind of transfer some of those things, being able to pick up moves from behind, being able to see whether the, the, the either person or horse in front is laboring. And just those things about watching thousands of races transfer over to the two-legged type as well. So... That was that was an advantage for me as I tried to uh, to sort of change the the culture of of track and field race calling and try to put some excitement into it. So 
it is different, but I did have that advantage of coming from sort of a racing background. And, um, uh, but, but you, you are right. You have to shift gears totally if you're doing a football game or a track and field meet or a horse race or, or figure skating, which is the other odd thing in the mix of all the, all the sports that I do. So it, it just takes work and you, uh, like any job, if you, uh, if you do a good job and work at it, you'll, you'll be, uh, successful. And if you don't, if you, you'll be exposed to fraud pretty quickly. Yeah, it's just it's really interesting to me that that part of it where you know it's it's one big craft when you talk about sports broadcasting, but it's so different doing the various things that you do. You, you talked about uh, really your 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 start, and really you thought that thoroughbred racing was going to be your career, and I, I you you mentioned a little bit about it here, but I was very curious about how much of of that background you could bring into into something like track and field well a lot and uh i have some friends in the in the horse business that say well you just took all those things that you learned uh, from doing horse racing and transferred them to track and field which is somewhat correct uh, I've, i tried to make it not too obvious but uh but it it has helped a tremendous amount i majored you know joe in animal science i sure. thought i was going to go to the thoroughbred racing business i worked at the racetrack in the summers at the belmont and saratoga as a groom and uh, I couldn't find a very good job when I graduated. And so out of semi-desperation, I went to graduate school. And while I was there, I had a friend that was doing a horse racing results show. Now, this is before the information age when the breeders around central Kentucky might have a horse racing uh, at Aqueduct. And you'd have to wait for the paper or the racing form the next day to find out how that horse did. So my friend had started a horse race results radio show where he just read race results from around the country. And uh, his primary employer was the Daily Racing Forum, who was being transferred to Miami. Couldn't find anybody to take his place. So I, I don't know why, but I volunteered to, to take his place doing the race results, and that's where I began, WVLK Radio in Lexington at $35 a week. Wow. And that was literally just reading results? <laughs> yep, just reading the horse results from all over the race results from all over the country. That's amazing. And you began actually doing some some broadcasting beyond that with horse racing? Uh, well, I just started, uh, while I was working at that radio station, I just started volunteering for everything. <clears throat> they needed someone to do a nightly sports show, and I volunteered. They needed someone to do uh, high school football and basketball play-by-play, so I volunteered for that. And uh, you know, when the Keeneland race meets were on, they needed lots of programming in and around, so I volunteered to go do interviews and to, to bank them and have a couple of shows every day and to do the feature race of the day broadcast and then uh, a job opened up at the nbc affiliate in lexington wlex tv as the sports director which is a fancy name for a one-man sports department but uh, that's that's what i started doing uh in way back in 1970 wow you you know one of my favorite parts of the way you call uh both thoroughbred racing and 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 track i mean you, you talk about the similarities is that you have a real sense of the story, uh, the individual stories, whoever, whatever horse wins you have in your mind. And obviously this comes from research, but there's also a, a storytelling sense about it where you just, you just know, you know, the, the story of this, of this horse is, is this owner who has been waiting forever or this jockey who, who has gone through all sorts of things. And you, you bring that to track and field. I mean, do you, is that, is that a conscious thing that you do? It is, Joe, because, uh, let's face it, if you're watching a race, uh, at the Olympics when you're not familiar with the runners themselves, uh, you don't really care who wins or loses right. unless you hear the stories. 
and uh, the stories are rich and great and inspiring and sad and uh, just all the different gamut of emotions. Uh, and, you know, that's that's the whole thing is to tell the stories because otherwise, why would you watch if you didn't care who won or lose, uh, won or lost? And it's the same way with everything. Um, when I first started doing play-by-play, it was pretty basic, nuts and bolts, down and distance, that kind of stuff. And Dick Ebersol insisted that his play-by-play people become storytellers. Yeah. And as it turned out, I had a pretty good knack for storytelling, as my friends can tell you as we <laughs> sit around. Some of those stories even true. And as we uh, sit around and listen, so I, that fell right into my into my wheelhouse, so to speak. And uh, being a storyteller is part of being a modern play-by-play sportscaster. And that was uh, Dick Ebersol's inspiration that that uh, and his insistence that got us into that that mode but i always say too that uh, i'm lucky to work in two uh, venues which have the greatest stories of all the olympics obviously and then horse racing because you have the stories of not only the horses but the owners trainers jockeys and on and on so um storytelling has become a big part of any modern sportscaster's repertoire and I'm lucky to to participate in some of the sports that have great great stories. Yeah, and and I think those sports have it in particular. I mean, because because especially in track and field, I mean, we, we all know about the great storytelling in horse racing, but there's so many different people. What what are some of uh, just a few of the stories that you're pretty excited about coming into into these games? Because it's like I say, track is so vast. There's so many athletes. But what are just a few of the things that you're pretty excited about coming in? Well, Bernard Lagat of the United States is made his fifth Olympic team. He'll make make it in the in the 5000 and he uh, he's 41 years old. <laughs> and w- what a great story and his children will be able to participate in the in the Olympic experience with him and uh, that'll be something that all of them will remember forever. Ashton Eaton who has just been amazing as he emerged from Oregon onto the scene as the world's greatest athlete, the decathlon uh, world champion and Olympic gold medalist will be competing at the same time as his wife competes in the heptathlon. His wife is Canadian and is a leading heptathlete. It's possible they could go home with uh, two gold medals from the Olympics, and that would be quite a story, too. Um, Of course, uh, everybody cannot uh, wait to see uh, if, uh, you know, Usain Bolt, the greatest sprinter that ever lived, can do it again. He'll be 30 years old during the Olympics, and can he continue to do something no one has ever done win the gold medal in the 100 and the 200 at three straight Olympics. Um, and on and on, David Radisha from uh, from uh, Kenya, who was uh, coached by um, a brother who runs a school there that he attended. Uh, you can just go on and on. Wade Van Newkirk from South Africa, who uh, is coached by a 74-year-old grandmother. Um, they're just, there are just so many stories, and uh, they'll emerge, and of course we'll have a chance to tell most of them uh, not only in the you know as the race unfolds but in features and other things too that NBC has planned it's really exciting and, and I'm, I'm going to ask you very specifically about uh, Usain Bolt here in a minute because obviously that has to be one of the the great thrills for you has been following his career from that insane sort of debut in in Beijing to you know on and on uh, but before I get to that you mentioned Ashton Eaton uh, there was a time when uh, decathletes were the biggest stars. Them and the hundred meter people were the biggest stars of the Olympics. And you know we can we can go back, obviously, you know to to Bruce Jenner and 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 uh, now Caitlyn Jenner. You going back further and further back. There's a chance that Ashton Eaton is in, uh, not a chance. I mean, I don't think it's. I think it's pretty much inarguable. He's the greatest 
decathlete in the history of, of sport. I mean, he's, he's broken the record many times. He's, he's basically unbeatable. Um, do people fully appreciate that? I mean, obviously that's, that's something that's, it's going to be a real thrill to watch him perform. I think he's underappreciated. Yeah. And part of that is because of the demise of track and field, except in, in Olympic years. People just don't follow it like they used to. And it used to be traditional, you know, the, the decathlete uh, that won the gold medal at the Olympics was on the Wheaties box right That's after right. that. That was a tradition. And, uh, and their talents, I think, are underappreciated now. And, and the story about Ashton is that he is such a wonderful person, as well as being uh, the, the greatest decathlete that ever lived. So, um, you know, that, that is a good story to try to get across to people. Uh, they don't pay attention to it much except during the Olympics. So it'll be our job to relate that story about not only his personality and his, uh, you know, upbringing and the fact that he is, uh, the greatest decathlete that ever lived. So that'll be one of our jobs is to get that across so people can appreciate him more because he's worth watching. Just like Usain Bolt. I mean, how would you ever miss a chance to see? the greatest that ever lived in that category. It's incredible. You know, it's funny. You mentioned this earlier uh, about your own career, uh, how we live in this era of specialization. And I really did wonder if, if we don't, and, and you're right. I mean, much of this is just track and field itself is, is, is really just emerges at the Olympics and, and does not emerge nearly as much in, in non-Olympic years, you know, used to be a, a huge, huge event. But At least in the U.S., it's still pretty big around the rest of the world. But in the U.S., that's certainly the case, Joe. Right, exactly, in the United States. But but again, that there also seems to me to be something about specialization. I mean, what he what he does is the ultimate, you know, generalist. I mean, he you have obviously it's ten events and 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 you know so many different skills you need to be a great decathlete. And I do wonder if there was a time when we appreciated the, these sort of generalists a little bit more than now when, when the specialists are, are, are so, you know, so high in our minds, I guess. I think that's a good observation. I think that's true. And uh, if you examine all the different skills it takes in the 10 event of the decathlon, man alive. And then the last event, the 1500, is they line up after two days of <laughs> these grueling events. I mean, can you imagine the way your legs feel? And, and it looks perhaps sometimes like they're just jogging in the 1500, but stop and think what they've been through already, and now they're facing this grueling four-lap race uh, to wind things up and perhaps to decide the medals. Uh, uh, it takes a special person to be able to do all that, not only physically, but mentally. And one thing I really appreciate about the decathlon competition is the fact that it's a, it's a brotherhood. And if you watch, uh, they'll always take a, a victory lap together. Even if you finish last in the competition, you're invited to go on the victory lap with the gold medalist and the other medalists as well. It's a real fraternity, and they respect each other. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that's what athletics should be like, and we've lost that a lot in our modern world of sports. And to see them respect each other and uh, support each other uh, through tough times is, is pretty inspiring to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. It's, it's so grueling. I mean, it's so, as you, as you said, to do that 1,500, I mean, every story I've ever read, every uh, decathlete I've ever interviewed – uh, just talks about the the sheer. It's the fifteen hundred isn't about speed anymore. It's just about <laughs> the heart, right? It's just yeah, about, about survival. Yeah, uh, yeah, about just making it through, and uh, uh, and you just have to admire them, and 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 just think uh, the, those two days of competition, how grueling that is. But think of all the training that has gone into that yes. over all the years uh, before you get to the Olympic stage, 
it, it's pretty incredible. It is. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. And I'm really, really looking forward to seeing Ashton Eaton uh, perform. Now, before we talk about Bolt, you have seen, you've seen sprinting as I have watched sprinting. You know, there was a time probably right around 2000 when Maurice Green uh, was the best in the world and had, you know, goat written on his arm, you know, greatest of all time. He had a tattoo that said greatest of all time. It was inarguable at the time. He was, he had, he had the world record and he, he had run the most sub 10 hundreds and all these other things. And I was, you know, I, I knew Maurice very well. He's from Kansas city where I was from. And so where I was writing from, so I knew him very well. And then Usain Bolt comes along and it's like, it's like a different dimension that he's achieved, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like you can't, there's nobody from the past, no matter how great they were that even feel comparable to what he's done. It's otherworldly. I always thought that uh, Jesse Owens and yes. Carl Lewis were probably the, the most influential and uh, you know, had the most impact of any of those sprinters. But Usain Bolt, I think back to Osaka and the world championships, Tyson Gay beat him. Uh, and then after that, he has been unbeatable. And if you go back to the Beijing Olympics when he won the hundred, he's six foot five. Normally, they don't even get uncoiled in a hundred meters. For him to be that tall and to be able to win it consistently is just amazing in itself. He takes you know so many fewer strides than the others that that I guess that's the secret to it. But uh, if you think back to that race in Beijing, um, he was crowning around at the end and he smashed the world record. There's no telling how fast he could have run. And we looked back at the tape, Joe, and his right shoelace was untied and flopping around. I mean, uh, how he was from another planet. How could this happen? And then to go on and take the 200 to anchor the relay and to do it again in uh, in London, uh, it, was, it was just amazing. And to win the world championships. And the only time he's lost is when he false started at the world championships. So um, uh, he's amazing for his height and for his stride and, now coming up on 30 years of age, if he can do it again, it, it will be the stuff of legend. It was already a legend. And, you know, when Otto Bolden, my partner on the track and field commentary sprints, uh, proclaimed him the greatest ever, that, that pretty much sensed it for me. Uh, you know, I, I was, I was saying that and thinking that, but to have someone who's actually been in it to say that, uh, is a pretty amazing statement. And, uh, you know, how, how could you miss a chance to see the greatest of all time in, in any sport perform? And, if he's able to do it again, uh, it, it'll just be the stuff of legends. And, you know, I often say to, to young broadcasters, if you know you're going to be a part of something that's historical, you know, try to make your commentary equal to the moment. Don't yeah. be doing some something lame. Think about what you might say. Don't memorize it, but think about what you might say. So um, that's a challenge, and uh, hopefully I'll be up to it. Well, I know, I know you'll be up to it. Uh, you, there are a couple of things that you said in there. One is... Uh, you know, in comparing uh, eras, it's it really is, and 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 you 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 hinted at this. Nobody will ever be as influential as Jesse Owens. I mean, what Jesse Owens did is not it's not fair to compare him to anyone else or anyone else to him. I mean, he was he was such a an overpowering uh, athlete of his time and his place, and and what he did in in Germany in '36 is is it will is unequaled and and will always be unequaled and, and the same thing goes with with people like carl lewis and all the gold medals and all the things that he did what what strikes me about usain bolt and this is exactly what i wanted to to ask you you led right into this it's impossible to describe and i've tried to do it i was there in beijing and i remember 
the early race, one of the one of the qualifying, you know, the quarterfinals or whichever, the, the not even the first one, he ran like a nine eight eight, and honestly, the last thirty meters, he was jogging. He he wasn't even trying, and he ran right. sub ten. And I thought, what is this? What this is? This is this is inhuman. And it's just one person or just a, a group of people running hundred meters, and yet it's impossible for me to describe what it's like to be there. It's such an extraordinary thing to witness. And that's, that's your job though, is, is you've got to try to put people there and, and, and you do a wonderful job of that, but that's, that's gotta be very, very hard to do. Well, it's a lot of pressure and uh, hopefully the, the immensity of the event comes across. I mean, it's like the start of a heavyweight fight or yeah. something of that nature that hopefully that, that tension and that anticipation comes across in the broadcast uh, because it is a, a wonderful moment. And, uh, you know, the race is over in nine seconds. There's no margin for error either. So it's a little bit of pressure that I always feel beforehand. Uh, maybe it's good pressure, but uh, you think about it, that's, <laughs> you, you just can react. You can't think about what you're going to say. You just sort of react to the race itself. And, uh, you know, he always, uh, Usain, we talk about him bursting onto the scene. I think he always wanted to run the 100, yeah. but his coaches thought he was too tall and had him in the 200, which, of course, he was great at as well. And he finally got his wish to run in the hundred, and wow, uh, are we ever grateful that he got that that chance? Because he is a uh, he's the stuff of memories. It really is incredible. It's incredible. You you mentioned there really is that this this one of the things that fascinates me because as a writer, I get to think pretty thoroughly about what I'm going to do before I do it. But as a broadcaster, it's instinct. It's your, what you say. You can't take it back. It's all in the moment. But yet you you just said you do think quite a bit about what do I think about? What do I say? What do I do without memorizing? But you do have that in your mind. So how do you how do you bridge those two things where you're thinking about calling an event and there's going to be you know, we talk about you saying both, but there's going to be a lot of great events here. Thinking. Yeah, about you think the, about. Yeah, think about the stories and you try to pay off pay off the stories, you know, you think about in advance what the story is, what's important about this person, and if this happens, you know, what would I say? Now, you know, it doesn't always work out that way, and uh, but, I, but I think you should pay attention and, and think about it at least beforehand so that you just don't say something lame that when they play the tape 50 years from now, they'll say, ooh, that wasn't so good. Um, uh, I really thought uh, one, of the, one of the ones I'm most proud of was when Kathy Freeman, the Aboriginal yes. Australian 400 meter runner, uh, took the stage in uh, in Sydney. And, you know, I thought about this moment; it's going to be something else. Uh, she had finished second in the in the 400 in Atlanta four years earlier. And if you look back in history, the first time the women's 400 was ever run in the Olympics was in 1960. So, and it was won by an Australian. So, putting all these things together as part of the story. Uh, as they got into the blocks, I said that Kathy Freeman has waited four years for this moment. Australians have waited 40 years. Wow. And her Aboriginal people have waited forever. Of course, an Aboriginal person had never won uh, an Olympic gold medal. And so that, that sort of was the way I summed up uh, the immensity of the moment. And then the 120,000 or so in Olympic Stadium in Sydney didn't didn't hurt either and if you remember the race it was quite dramatic too she got to the head of the home straightaway and was about fourth and there's no way she's going to win and somehow she just willed herself to victory and uh about two steps beyond the finish line she just collapsed uh not only with the, the physical effort but with the 
emotional part of it. Yes. Uh, she'd, she'd been the one chosen to light the Olympic flame in the opening ceremonies, and the expectations of all the Australian people just on her shoulders, and uh, here it was all gone. She'd won the gold medal. She had lived up to all the expectations and all the pressure, and she just, it was too much for her. She just collapsed right to the track, and what a moment. What a great moment that only occur at the Olympics, really. Yeah, well, I mean, it's that has to be being in that stadium in Sydney in 2000 for the night of Kathy Freeman. That has to be one of the most extraordinarily energetic, uh, inflamed uh, places that you've ever been. And you've been you've been everywhere. You've been to all of the big events, and obviously, uh, you know, you've been been at some of the some of the greatest uh, horse races in, in in history as well, where there's just as many people. Uh, but that had to be the energy in that place was was probably as much as any place you've ever been, right? It was amazing, and I've been you know I've done football games in the Big House at right. Michigan and Neyland Stadium and uh, in Baton Rouge and all those huge football stadiums, but never have I felt the energy that I felt there as the as the Australians and I don't, the capacity is a hundred, over a hundred thousand whatever it is in an Olympic stadium then, but all eyes were on Kathy Freeman. You can imagine the pressure. And uh, but the energy in there and the expectation in there was something that I don't think I've ever seen equaled any place else. And you know these these uh, these moments come at the Olympics. I can remember in London when the Brits won two gold medals there in the space of 45 minutes or yes. so, and the, and that's an 80,000 seat stadium. But it was as loud as just about anything you can imagine. And then during the medal ceremony to hear them belt out "God Save the Queen," it sent chills down your spine. So. These are Olympic moments, and these are the things we're looking forward to in Rio. It's going to be it's going to be so much fun. It's going to be so much fun. So, last last question uh, is, and this is sort of a you know just a how you think about it type of thing. Obviously, when you're in Rio, uh, when all of us are there, you're in the the spirit of Rio. You know, I mean, you, you don't know exactly what's going on back home. You know, there's there's a there's an Olympic bubble that you're that you're in. You know, when you're when you're calling a, a an event, and especially if it's an American, how much do you think about what this is going to be? And I, and I ask this question because uh, I remember talking to Al Michaels after when he talked about you know doing the 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 Miracle on Ice game against against the Soviets, and he said he had no idea. He said I called the game, and I was in the United States, but I had no idea the impact. That it was going to have back home, you know, around the country. I had no idea. I knew it was a, a great upset, but I had no idea just what a gigantic thing it was going to be. How much can you sense of how big things are, you know, back home uh, while you're actually doing the broadcasting? Well, you know, you're right, Joe. You're in sort of a cocoon there yeah. when you're doing it, and you're getting up every day and going to work, and there's not a whole lot of time to think of anything else. But uh, in the big events, uh, I know that it's going to have an impact. I know Usain Bolt, not being an American, but it'll still have a huge impact in the United States and all the way around the world. Sure. And you can make a pretty good case that he's the world's most recognizable athlete mm -hmm. uh, because track and field is so much bigger in other other parts of the world. But I think about that, and I think about Ashton Eaton, that uh, he could have a huge impact. It could be, in effect, his coming out party where people do appreciate him more, which you mentioned earlier, perhaps he's underappreciated. It could be that. So I know there will be an impact, but um, you, d you don't really know what it's going to be like if you tell a story well and it's a really engaging story and then paid off in some way on the on the track itself. Uh, it could have a huge impact. But you, you sort of 
uh, do each broadcast, do each race as if it will have a huge impact. And uh, it doesn't always work out that way, of course. But like I say, you've got to be up to the moment, and you assume that it will be a big moment and try to give it your, your best shot. That's the only way I know how to do it. Absolutely. Well, Tom, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. My pleasure, Joe. I enjoyed it. We had some, some good memories we discussed, and hopefully we'll make some more in Rio. 